Hey, good morning, Trinity Church family. Glad to be here with you guys. Also, greetings to those of us who are joining online. Glad that you're here this morning as well. Uh, my name is Jack Recruiter. I have the privilege of leading us into, as we continue this series, on the idea of stewardship. Now, reminder, we're talking about stewardship as a component of a bigger initiative called Do One Thing. And if you're here today saying, like, it doesn't feel like one thing. It feels like lots of things. Right? Well, I just want to remind you why we're doing that. So the Do One Thing series is built around the idea that our mission statement here at Trinity Church is to glorify God and make disciples by awakening people to full life with Christ. The one thing that we are trying to do is become disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's the one thing. But if you're like me, sometimes it's like, yeah, but I kind of need to know what the ingredients are, right? Or like, I need to know, like, what are the component pieces of that? Which is why, in a very intentional way, we've taken each month and we've said, okay, as we work toward trying to become disciples who make disciples who make disciples, this is one thing we really should talk about. And since September, we've talked about several things. We've talked about identity. We've talked about Bible engagement. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about mission. We've talked about community. And now we are talking about the idea of stewardship as a really significant component of what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples. And Pastor Marvin kicked us off last week with that idea of the, the, the nature of stewardship really even goes back to the Garden of Eden. And if you missed that message, I would highly recommend that you go back and that you check it out because it really sets a tone uh, for why we're talking about this and really why it matters. But this morning, uh, as I was praying about this message, I had a sense of starting it in a way that's going to feel a little bit old school for some of us. And it's a tradition that actually dates back even before um, the early church. Like this is something that the Hebrews would actually do as well. And, and here's what we're going to do. Our brothers and sisters around the world in different Christian faith traditions will sometimes do this as a regular component of their gathering. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you in a moment or two to stand as we read the word of God together. There's a reason for that. When you stand, it demonstrates a posture of attentiveness and honor. Now, we don't do that all the time. It's not like if you're not standing, you're not honoring God. But it's just one of those things to kind of change the mix up a little bit for us. And to be able to say in a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read the word of God together. Because we recognize at Trinity Church that God does something unique in us and through us, both individually and collectively, when we submit ourselves to the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God as we teach the word. And then after we read the passage that we're going to kind of use as our springboard, I'm going to pray for us, and then you can sit back down, okay? Everybody good? All right. I'm going to invite you, if you are able, to stand. And brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 41. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. 
Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, oh, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Father, this is your word. And I pray in the name of Jesus that we would hear what you have to say this morning. Whether we have been faithful in what you have entrusted to us or unfaithful, we rejoice that you are a good and loving God and Father who always allows us to start over, to begin afresh, and to turn to you. And so, Father, we submit ourselves again to you this morning and all that you might teach us through your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. All right, so anybody else a little creeped out by this passage? (laughs) This is a disturbing passage of Scripture. It always has felt that way to me. And I'd actually like to start by telling you why. First, what is with the tenants? I mean, seriously, these people rent land from a wealthy landowner. In the first century context, they would have said, look, we don't own land, but we would like to farm. We would like to be able to benefit from the land. So they would go to the landowner. They would agree to work the land and to farm it in exchange for the fact that once the harvest came, they would give as rent or payment a portion of what they farmed to the owner. Sometimes this is called vassalage. In feudal systems in Europe and beyond, it it sometimes would be called serfdom. But the idea was this. The tenants didn't own the land. They rented it in exchange for some of the fruit. They, They would have given a percentage of what they harvested, but they never owned the land. This wasn't like a rent to own, land contract kind of a situation. The owner of the land owns the land. And so when the owner would send servants, their job would have been to have said, here's the portion that the the landowner gets. And then they would have been able to have enjoyed the rest, right? So they, they weren't employees who were farming the land for a wage. They got to keep and enjoy a significant section of what they grew, but they still owed the fruit to the landowner. But that is not what these guys do. They farm the land, but somehow, over time, and for reasons that are not included here, they begin to think that the land is actually theirs. Now, they demonstrate this in a couple of ways. The first is that when the owner sends his servants to collect his portion, they just refuse to give it. But second... They, they do this kind of first century equivalent of get off my lawn, right? It's like the owner sends his servants to say, where's the fruit? And it's like they kind of stand out on their porch with this sort of first century shotgun and scream, what are you doing here? Get off my lawn. But it's not their lawn. And then the landowner says, okay, 
Clearly, they are not understanding the authority that is going on here. So I know, I'm going to send my son. Surely, they will recognize his authority, but they don't. They kill him as well. And notice this. This is what they say. Okay, this blows my mind. This is what they say. This is the heir. Come and let us kill him and have his inheritance. What the heck? Like, did you really think, like, I'm trying, I'm curious, like, how in the world would you have envisioned this going down? That the landowner is going to say, like, walk up and be like, well, darn, I guess it's all yours now. I mean, I sent my servants, I sent my son. (sighs) Too bad for me. I guess it's your land now. I, I don't understand. This is messed up. But I will tell you what has changed, brothers and sisters. And it is a critical point for us to remember as we talk about stewardship. And it is this. We fail to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us when we begin to believe that we own what we only borrow. I'm actually going to say that again. We fail to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us when we begin to believe that we own what we only borrow. If you don't know what stewardship means, it's basically a synonym for management, right? Look, you manage these resources. You don't own them. You are entrusted these resources, but they are not your resources, A good steward is a good manager. It is a person who understands that the resources are being entrusted to them for a purpose by someone who owns the resources. And we all have been entrusted with resources. Like, we all, and here's the thing. I I like, from the thoughts in your head when you woke up this morning, to the grass that you walked on, to the relationships that you have, to the car that you drove most likely to get here, those things have all been entrusted to you. And we're all that way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? I think one of the most dangerous Things, one of the most damaging things that we do to our own souls is when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords shows up in some area of our lives and we stand on our porch with our shotgun and we tell him to get off our lawn. It's just like, it is so messed up that somewhere along the way, these tenants shifted their thinking And they're not even acting like tenants anymore, but they are. Second, what is up with the landowner sending his son? Anybody else think that way? This this passage has always bothered me. I am serious. If you have this situation going on in your own life, what would you do? Let's say you own rental properties. Let's say you have tenants that pay rent. Let's say that they get behind on their rent and you send an employee to go and collect the rent. Let's say that they beat the employee and that one employee comes back to you and says, you know, the other two employees that you sent with me, I don't know what happened to them. Like, I think they're buried in the basement somewhere. What would you do? I'm not going to say, well, let's send some more employees. 
And I'm certainly not going to say, you know what? I'm sure this is a big misunderstanding. I'm going to just send Elijah and Perry to go and have tea with them. I'm not doing that. Why in the world does the landowner do that? Like, like, I'm not taking what is most precious to me, my children, and sending them into an environment where clearly the people there are not operating in their right mind or their right sense of reality. I am not going to say, hey, you've abused everything so far. Here's my kids. I'm not doing that. But the landowner does. What is going on there? Well, I will tell you what's going on there. It's actually book-ended, um, plus or minus this passage. See, Jesus is actually talking to and about the religious leaders of his day. He tells this parable to illustrate how the religious leaders of his day had begun to think and act, and they got it. See, just outside of this passage in verses 45 through 46, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, (laughs) they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. See, One of the things that Jesus is saying is, this is not a one-time kind of a thing. This is a repeating pattern through history. See, with the nation of Israel, God had consistently sent prophets to the people to announce, this is what God says. This is what God does. And more often than not, whenever God sent prophets, the people of God ignored them, chased them out of town, or yes, unfortunately, even killed them. And they understood what he was talking about. And yet, this is so messed up to me. Because not only did they understand what he was saying, they understood that it was about them. And yet, what do they do? They continue to do the same thing he's telling them that they were doing. Hey, you guys are the tenants. Guess what? We're going to go keep acting like those tenants that you talked about. That to me is like going to the doctor, learning that you have terminal diabetes. And if your doctor says, if you eat one more Baskin Robbins banana split, you will die. And then what you do when you leave is you go to Baskin Robbins to eat a banana split to console yourself over the bad news. I don't understand. You're like, hey, you guys are the tenants. We got that. We're coming after you. Like you're just acting like the tenants that we just talked about in the story. Like I would like to think, that if the Spirit of God showed up in my life and said that, that I would do a hard stop, right turn, what am I thinking? Father, I am so sorry, but before we're too hard on the Pharisees and the priests and the teachers of the law, I think we can all recognize that we all do that, don't we? <laughs> like I've, I stand here before you as someone who is a chronic and habitual discoverer of areas in my life where I have stood on my front porch and continue to do so that I find I have actually told God to get off my lawn and I have to resubmit and resurrender. It's just, it's just, it's just what we do. And he is patient and he is kind. But it's still kind of messed up to me that the landowner sends his son. I'm not doing that. You know what I'm doing? I'm calling the police. I'm having someone from the sheriff's department show up with papers and a gun, probably backed up by other people with guns, right? I'm going to aid in criminal investigations. Like that's what I'm doing. 
And yet that's not what God does. And there's a lot more to it in this passage. And I think it, it, it is worth us sort of looking and recognizing that there's something beautiful about the heart of God that emerges here in this passage. And it is simply this, no matter how messed up we are, no matter how desperately off the rails we have gotten or fallen, the creator of the universe doesn't just view us as bad tenants in any area where we have screamed at him to get off our metaphorical lawn, but instead goes to great lengths to bring us back to himself. And here's the thing. He actually could call us bad tenants. That would be right and just. He could. He could come after us in the same way that I probably would in that scenario. He could. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus is addressing the religious leaders right before his crucifixion. And he actually says this, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, I hold the world together by the word of my power. And I could summon cosmic forces to wipe out all opposition right now, instantaneously if I wanted to, but I don't. That is not an indicator of his lack of power. It is an indicator of his control over it. You know what that tells me? It tells me that in this story, his son is never in any real danger anyway. That's kind of crazy. It tells me that he actually loves the tenants enough, shocking though that would be, to come to them personally, to try to win them and restore them to their right minds. And that this is the critical difference between Jesus and any other personality or figure in history. Every person I can think of that has power, if you mess with them like this, you will feel the pain of that power. And yet, and yet, even in the midst of this, God still sends his son And he's not in any real danger anyway. Do you know how I know that? Because in John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus says this, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Wow. Wow. I would not be feeling friendly toward those tenants. If you abuse my children, you should expect to meet me in a really bad mood. But instead, God still seeks to offer them an opportunity to return to his authority and to be good stewards when they had clearly demonstrated that they were unfaithful and were not operating as such. And I think that should be good news for us, guys. Because if you're like me today, you know that there are places where you have screamed get off my lawn the same way that I have. And that blows my mind that I don't care who you are, I don't care what you have done, or how many of his attempts to reach you that you have sent back to him in body bags. 
He is still willing to come to you himself, to restore you to himself. It is mind-bending, but that's just the kind of God he is. Next, does it freak you out that it is Jesus telling this parable? It does me, and I'll tell you why, because this is Jesus, Mr. Turn the Other Cheek. Pray for your enemies, die for them if you have to. This is Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. Like this is Jesus feeding the poor, caring for people. Like this is Jesus. And yet here we see this sort of like gonna show up and put those people to a miserable death. What, I mean like, what happened, Jesus? This feels like a bit of a right turn. At least it does to me. Does it, does it to you guys? It's like, what happened here? Is, is Jesus suddenly advocating retributive punishment? Is he, is he like punishment, judgment, and death? Boom, coming your way. Theater near you. What's really going on here? Because if you're like me, I look at that and think, that's pretty scary. Like that is scarier than any horror novel or horror movie that we as human beings can come up with. When you have an omnipotent being with omnipotent capacity that starts talking about punishment, judgment, and death, I get nervous. So what's really going on here? Well, first, whenever we read about judgment and punishment in the Bible, we have to remember that the intent is first and foremost disciplinary, guys. It's disciplinary. That is true for us who are Christ followers, but it's also true for people who are not. God designs and desires his action in our midst to bring us to himself. He desires that none should perish. So when he acts in a way, severe, possibly, difficult, you bet, Painful, perhaps, but the intent and the purpose of it is always first to bring us back to himself. And you know what I really am worried about? I worry sometimes that we think that God is more emotionally immature than we are. But God is not petty, brothers and sisters. He is not less emotionally mature than you are. He doesn't hit first, blame others, or level his omnipotence at created beings who are well below his fighting weight. He doesn't bully, he is not cruel, and he is not your mom or dad who were, or you on your worst day when you parent like that. When we see judgment and punishment in the Bible, it is nearly always first and foremost, an act of discipline designed to bring us back to himself for our good. And do you know how I know that? Because it's in both the Old and the New Testament as direct quotes. If you look at Proverbs 3.11 and Hebrews 12.5-8, this is what it says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children 
and not sons. Even what appears harsh to us and our human sensibilities is designed for our benefit. Hard as it is for us to believe or understand, God's intention is always for our shalom. If you've heard me talk before, the idea of shalom in scripture is far more than just peace, man. No, shalom is the biblical idea of the piecing back together of everything, the way that God intended it to be. And he loves us enough to bend us back to himself to see that operating in our lives. His discipline is for our good and his glory. Anytime we see punishment or retribution or justice or any of those things or judgment in scripture, they are first and foremost attempts at discipline. But we also know this, God does allow us to go our own way fully knowing the end that that brings. One of the things I say all the time, one of the scariest, most dangerous things about being human to me is that I can choose to say no to my God and my King. <laughs> That kind of capacity should literally make us tremble. I can choose to resist the God and King of all creation and go my own way. I can. Despite his patience and his mercy, the tenants in this passage, and even we ourselves, we can choose to go down fighting and shooting from our front porches until the guns are wrested from our hands and we are carried away in cuffs. We can. We can choose that. He lets us do that for a season, but he doesn't desire that for us, brothers and sisters. He desires that we would respond to him, that we would be brought back to him, restored to our place as stewards, not as rebels. And the next thing I want to point out here is that fruit matters. Fruit matters. The tenants were entrusted with land and the owner expected fruit. When they refused to yield it, the owner took away their land and gave it to other stewards who would yield the fruit that he wanted. And this is where we pick up the idea of stewardship again. Stewardship is first and foremost about fruit. It's about taking what has been entrusted to us and producing the fruit that the one who gave it to us expects. Yes, we do get to enjoy it along the way, but that's not the point of it. And I feel like it's really important to distinguish that. If you've been blessed because you are financially successful, that's awesome. That is a beautiful blessing from God, but he entrusted that to you for fruit, for his kingdom and for his glory, and secondarily for your blessing and your benefit and your enjoyment. If you are Brian Tyson and you have more friends than you can literally even count, that is a beautiful thing. That is an incredible blessing. But that has been 
um, given to him to yield and to produce fruit for God's kingdom first and secondarily for his enjoyment. If you are Ben Diaz and you have amazing musical talents, those are beautiful gifts, but they are intended first and foremost to yield and generate fruit for the glory of God and the kingdom of God and only secondarily for his enjoyment. And here's the problem, guys. I think sometimes when you hear about so-called health, wealth, and prosperity gospels, the problem is they invert the two things. They would say, God wants to bless you for your enjoyment. Yeah, but that's second. He blesses you for fruit. And then secondarily for enjoyment. And when we get those things confused and we put our enjoyment first over fruit, fruitfulness, and being able to yield those things for him and for his kingdom, we move out onto our front porch with our shotgun and we start looking at him and saying, you better just get off my lawn. This is for my enjoyment. This is for my pleasure. These are mine. This is my porch. That's my car. This is my house. Get off my lawn. That's really dangerous. Jesus ends this parable in a way, in this way, because he wants us to know and remember that if we are in him, then yes, he may discipline us if we start to forget our place. There is grace, brothers and sisters. There is mercy. There is patience. But never forget that all that we have is actually his And so if and when he asks for a portion, a percentage, a part, or all of something back, he can. It is his right to do so because it's all his anyway, not ours. So, what do we do with that? How do we take a passage like this and try to figure out how to live as good stewards? I I get it, guys. Like I'm telling you, I'm no different. I have lots of areas in my life where I am continually being asked by uh, by the spirit of my father to say, hey, Jack, you're still standing on your front porch right there. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, Father. I didn't, like, I just didn't see it, but man, I wanna, and I don't wanna do that anymore. And and I like, but what do we do with that? I would submit to you, that there are four key areas in our life where I think that we have a tendency to shout, get off my lawn the most. And as followers of Jesus specifically, we have the most responsibility to do otherwise. So I'd like to talk to you about those briefly. First, we are stewards of our core. Followers of Jesus should be the healthiest people on the planet. There's a myth going around in Christian subculture that sounds something like this. Look, it doesn't really matter how you treat your body. It doesn't really matter like what you do, like eat, drink, be merry. Doesn't really matter um, about your mental health. Doesn't really matter about your emotional well-being. Doesn't really matter. You know why? Because all is just going to go away anyway. And then you're going to kind of float around in the clouds in a spirit body for a little while. And then Jesus is going to give you a perfect body. So it doesn't really matter what happens with this one. So, you know, it's, it's fine. Hey, you know, you neglect it, stay up too late, get up too early, eat bad, don't exercise. I mean, whatever. I mean, it's just, it's all just going to go away anyway. So don't worry about that. You're just going to look forward to the new day when Jesus gives you the perfect body. Here's the problem. That's actually not biblical, brothers and sisters. In fact, in Romans 12:1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies 
as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I, I struggle with this. Um, I have kind of an extreme, <laughs> I have kind of an extreme personality if you haven't figured out. <laughs> uh, my problem is, is that I'm either starving myself or overeating. I'm either pushing my body way beyond what it can handle or I get hopeless and frustrated about it and just collapse on the sofa and say, what's the point? Like I don't do moderation very well. Ask anybody who knows me. This is hard for me, but I recognize that my body is a part of what I offer back to God as an act of worship. I would remind you that worship is submission and sacrifice. That's what the word worship actually means. It means I submit every area of my life to the lordship of my king and I demonstrate that by my sacrifice. It's basically saying, I trust you, watch. And I do that with my body. I am attempting to continually do that with my body as an act of worship. That's what that passage means. As a result, brothers and sisters, it matters that you get enough rest it matters that you eat nutritiously, which I get it, is sometimes difficult to do in our culture. It matters that you get adequate exercise, that you have healthy relationships, and that we stay away from or moderate the things that aren't good for us. That is our spiritual act of worship. And when we treat our bodies as though they are just ours, or that they don't belong rightfully under the lordship of Jesus, we are effectively saying, get off my lawn, God. It's my body. I do whatever I want with it. That also goes for our minds, our wills, and our emotions as well. I want to remind you that Jesus says in Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, here's the thing. In scripture... The idea of heart, mind, and strength, and soul are connected. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. What you think, what you feel, and what you do. So effectively what he's saying here is, is love the Lord your God with all of you. What you think about, what you feel, and what you do. All of it belongs to him anyway. So here's the question. If we looked at the things that we think about, that we dream about, that we hope for, that we fantasize about, that we do, and that we feel, how much of a possibility is there that we will find ourselves standing on our front porch with a shotgun? All of it belongs to him, guys. All of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Do those things honor the creator who entrusted those faculties to us? Or are we still telling him to get off our lawn? We are to be stewards of his creation. Followers of Jesus should be the most environmentally conscious people on the planet. There's another myth going around in Christian subcultures that sounds something like this. Look, he's just going to wipe all of it away anyway. Right? I mean, like, what does it matter if we actually fish the oceans until they are devoid of life? What does it matter if we strip mine ecosystems until there's no ability to actually live with them? What does it matter if we dump toxins into the soil or pump them into the air? What does it matter? 
I mean, Jesus is going to come back. He's just going to wipe everything away and start over anyway. So really, what difference does it make if we take care of this one that's right here now? That's a myth. You know why? Because it does say when Jesus comes back, it does say he will make everything new. But it doesn't say he will make all new things. The things that are here are things he cares about. They are part of his beauty, his artistry. We sang about it. We are the canvas and the clay. He is the artist. Guess what? Everything that you see around you is part of that art. And it's important to him. Pastor Marvin mentioned that last week when he said that in the book of Genesis, one of the first taskings for human beings was to keep and to to work and to keep the land, the creation. That was our first task. We are part of the created order. And so as a result, when the idea of coming up and saying, work it and keep it, it doesn't mean abuse and exploit it. And yet, I'm very concerned that as human beings, I kind of think we live that way. This is my lawn. What difference does that make? Like, who cares about the, well, I mean, like, no, we do. If we genuinely are seeking to be followers of Jesus, then what matters to our king matters to us. Why? Because we're just stewards of it. And I worry very often that we treat it as though we are not. Uh, Jim Grant is a member of our church. He and his wife, Tina, they are uh, amazing people. Uh, He's one of my best friends. He's also a business mentor of mine. I I go to him when I'm like, I don't know what to do about this. And he's like, oh, well, have you considered this? And Jim's actual expertise is in renewable energy. He's a renewable energy expert. Like he knows stuff about recycling and renewable energy and all of this kind of stuff. And when I was talking to Jim about this concept, one of the things I thought was really cool is he said, Jack, do you know what the foundation of my business is? It's the simple mantra, leave it better than you found it. And honestly, that's not a bad idea just as a life principle anyway, but it should be particularly true of us who are followers of Jesus. It matters how we treat the soil. It matters how we treat the water. It matters if we save the whales. Here's the thing. I'm not saying save the whales and ignore the humans. I'm saying both. Like we have a responsibility to steward and to care for that which has been entrusted to us, even if no one else in our world or our culture will. As followers of Jesus, we are stewards of his creation. You know, Dale and Katrina Ruff are uh, two people that are on our, uh, here are members at Trinity Church. Katrina's on our staff team. She works in our operations department. And uh, her husband, Dale, she, the two of them actually volunteer and lead within our re-engage ministry for married couples. They're wonderful people. And uh, Dale recently retired from Agro Liquid in St. John's after working there for several decades. And one of my favorite things when I drive in in the morning, especially in the summer, is I'll oftentimes look up and see Dale like riding one of our zero-turn radius mowers like it's an X-wing. I mean, he, like, it's like, I mean, he, I don't know how he does all that stuff, but I mean, it's like race, like, you know, move, turn. I mean, like he's doing all these crazy, like, you know, things that are really cool to be able to, 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 to care for the campus in our church, that our church sits on. And do you know why? It's not because Dale can't find something better to do with his hours as he's retired. It's that he and Katrina are passionate about creation. They love to garden. They love creation. They love this local church. And so they just found a place where those things dovetail. Dale actually comes and helps us to care for the creation on our campus. Dale gets it. Katrina gets it. 
They actually do embrace their mandate to work and to keep the very land that we enjoy here. And it matters. Next, we are stewards of our contexts. Followers of Jesus should be the most heavily invested people in the contexts where God has called them. We have talked about this a lot here at Trinity Church, but here's the thing. As a local church, I am part of a community of people who all have places where God has planted us to be the nearest agents of the kingdom of God. For my brothers and sisters sitting right down here, that may be your school. That may be your classrooms. It may be a sports or an athletic team. It may be a work environment. It might be the gym where you work out. It might be your neighborhood. But here's the thing. You have relationships and people that are important to God. And you are the nearest kingdom agent in that context. And I don't expect Trinity Church to reach my neighborhood for Christ. That's my job. We live on Birch Row in East Lansing, Michigan. And guess what? My neighbors are important to me. You know why? Because they are important to my king. And my family stewards those relationships intentionally. We invite them over for dinner. We take care of their pets when they go out of town. We pray for them and with them. We have fun with them. They matter to Jesus. So they matter to us. And we are the closest kingdom agents in that context. And so are you. And I don't know what your context is. I just know that you have one because you're breathing and you're here. If you are in Christ and you have a pulse, you have a context or maybe more than one. And as followers of Jesus, you have been entrusted with that context as part of what you will be a steward of. He has entrusted it to you. He has offered it to you. You are an agent of the kingdom in how you respond in that context. And finally, we are stewards of our capital. I know you probably assumed we would talk about this at some point this morning, but it really is true. If we are followers of Jesus, we have been entrusted with financial resources that our God and King expects us to steward for his glory and his kingdom. Now, we are not all entrusted with the same amount. I get that. But we are all entrusted with something. And my experience has been that as Christians in this country, any sermon is all fun and games until you start talking about money. Right? It's all good stuff until we start talking about pocketbooks and then pocketbooks and then things get real really fast. But I think that's just a really good indicator that this is a critical tender space for us to need to be able to talk about. And brothers and sisters, I get it. I, I have been there. I just want to acknowledge like it is possible that you are here this morning and you've had really bad experiences with the idea of money and church. You you might have actually experienced abuse in this area. You might have been part of a church or a congregation that oppressed you, made you feel fear or shame or guilt or something else about that. And I'm really sorry about that. I, I get it. Um, this is a long time ago. Sammy and I were um, just starting out in ministry. I worked on a church staff where I made a very, 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 
very low wage. Uh, we were a young family. I was working three part-time jobs just to be able to kind of supplement our income. So I'm doing full-time ministry. I'm scrubbing office toilets in the evening and I'm throwing papers in the morning. And uh, we were just having a very difficult time just making ends meet. And I remember one of the days, one of the pastors said, hey, Jack, can, we talk, can I talk to you about something? And I was like, sure. You know why? Because Sammy was going through cancer. So like, I thought maybe for sure, I'd be like, oh, this is going to be great. My pastor's going to sit down with me. He's going to ask how Sammy's doing. He's going to ask how we're processing things. He's going to ask if we're like struggling with anything. You know what he wanted to talk about? He said, hey, Jack, uh, we've been going over our giving records and we've noticed that you and Sammy don't appear to be giving enough. And I wanted to talk to you about why. Man. Like that, I was shocked, angry, hurt. I felt shame. It took me a couple of years to actually work through all of that. By the way, uh, we don't do that here. <laughs> Just so you know, you're like, you're like, oh no, Jack and Marvin are over there looking at my, no, no, we don't. Nobody knows what you give. The only time that that gets, uh, like there's a deviation from that is when we print statements and I don't do that. Right? So like our admin team does. So like, first of all, if you're like, oh no, the shame wave, just be like, don't ignore that. Let it all go down. If you've heard me say anything over the last almost 10 years that I've been here, you will need to hear me say, I do not believe that the spirit of God speaks fear, shame, or guilt to his children. So if you're immediately feeling fear, shame, or guilt about this topic, drop it. And yet, what I would tell you is, is that I think that more than any other area in our lives, as Americans, and particularly as American Christians, we stand on our front porch with a shotgun over our money, over almost everything else I can think of. And it's his. It's not ours. And so it matters what we do with it. And I just want to celebrate a couple of things. Do you remember last year at this exact time, Pastor Marvin stood up here and told you about a $300,000 budget shortfall that we were looking at. We were $300,000 behind. And what I will tell you in the last 12 months, through the people and the generosity of the living God through his people, we have made up that gap. The spirit of the living God has provided for that gap. We don't have it anymore. And he's continued to, to show and demonstrate himself faithful. Yeah. We celebrate that. And I just want to say thank you. If you are part of the community of faith here, guys, I would just say like, that's amazing. We have a beautiful campus. We have amazing staff. We have incredible programs. But here's the thing. It's still none of it's ours. It's his. And we are grateful for it with you. We are a blessed church. But that has very little to do with the status of our own hearts and our own finances and the way that we approach them when we bring them to God. So I just ask you to consider that if you are not giving at all financially, whether it's here to Trinity uh, as your local church or elsewhere to advance the kingdom of God beyond your own needs, your own rent, your own savings, then it may be an area that you need to ask the Spirit of God if you are stewarding well. And again, guys, that is not for shame. We can actually help you with that, by the way. If you're like, oh man, Jack, I want to. I just can't figure out how to get out of drowning in credit card debt. I'll be like, we can help you. 
Carolyn talked about it. Like, you really should consider going through Financial Peace University. Like, we're starting that up soon. I will admit, like, 20 years ago, Sammy and I were drowning in credit card debt. We wanted to give and do more than we could. We just couldn't figure it out. We needed help. So we got help. And we haven't used credit cards for 20 years. You can do it. And we don't even want to help you so that you can give here. I mean, we hope you will give here because we do stuff, clearly. But, but we want you to be helped because we want you to be able to be good stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to you. We want you being able to respond and engage when the Spirit of God says, hey, I kind of want you to do that. We want you to be able to, because I would remind you, it's an expression of worship. It's an expression of submission and sacrifice. And when we offer the green bags that come, like, like that's what we're doing, guys. We are offering you an opportunity to express worship and it is no less, worse, or otherwise than when we sing songs or when you listen to me talk. Our worship gatherings are designed to be worship and the way we give is part of that. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna close in a way that may be a little bit different, but um, I just wanna direct your attention. There's a little insert. Um, It's in your bulletins. It looks kind of like this. It's got the little boxes. And here's what we're going to do. In a moment, I'm going to open us in prayer. We're going to have an opportunity to confess and repent of any places where we know that we have stood on our front porch and told God to get off our lawn. We'll have an opportunity to ask him to cleanse us of those things and to restore back to us a right spirit about what we steward. And then I'm actually going to give you some space to prayerfully look over and journal. What you'll notice is, is this little thing is, is organized by the things that I just told you. So it's like, um, we need to be stewards of our core. Stewards of creation, stewards of context, stewards of capital. And then there's some suggestions there. Now here's the thing. We're not asking you to do one of these things. It's just like, if you don't know what that even means, then there are some guided ideas. If you're like, Jack, how do I start stewarding God's creation? It's like, well, you might consider just recycling. I mean, mean, like, that's a step. It might be something else. Like, it doesn't have to be one of these things. These are just suggested prompts, but they'll give you an idea of some things that you might start doing, literally setting a bedtime. I'm, I'm just saying, there are some practical things that you might be able to do. You might walk out of here today with just one thing. That's great. You might walk out of here today with four. That, that's great. We just want to give you some space to allow the Spirit of God to actually surface and rise in your heart, your mind, and your will. What is he asking you to do to take a step in one of these areas toward further submission and sacrifice and the total worship of who he is in every area of your life and experience? So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to ask you to bow your head. And you'll see how this works as we go. And I'm going to open us and lead us in prayer. Abba and Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and my sisters, both here and online. And Father, we do not want to be the wicked tenants who forget that what we borrow has been given to us by you. We don't want to act as though we own them. We don't want to abuse or exploit what you have asked us to caretake, to work, and to keep. And Father, I just confess to you, I already know there are areas in my life 
where I've precisely done that. I have stood on the porch. I've tried to stare you down. I've told you to get off my lawn because I'm not ready to surrender it to you yet. But Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you with that now. And we resubmit and we resurrender it to you because it belongs to you anyway. And we repent of our rebellion. We turn away from, we take our hands off of that mentality. We change our mind. We change direction. We tell you we don't want that anymore. And Father, you say in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would cleanse us of any of these areas where we have refused to submit to you. Father, we've confessed it, we've repented of it. We ask in the name of Jesus that you break these things off of us that you burn them away from us. Father, from seven generations before to seven generations after, we ask in the name of Jesus, Father, that you would cleanse us and that you would restore back to us what rightfully belongs to us as children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not because of anything that we have done, but purely because of who you are and what you say is true. And Father, as we spend just a couple of moments now, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would speak, Father, to my brothers, my sisters, that you would surface in their hearts, Father. Is there an area? Is there something that you would ask us to do? Maybe it's just one thing. Maybe there's more than one thing. But Father, what are you asking us to do even this week to be better stewards of our core, our body, our mind, our will, our emotions. Father, is there something that you would ask us to do to be better stewards and caretakers of your creation? Abba, would you ask us to do something to be better caretakers and stewards of the relationships and the environment that you have entrusted to us as our context. And finally, Father, is there something that you would ask us to do with our capital? the physical resources that you've entrusted to us, Father, is there something that you're asking us to do with that? To submit, to surrender, to sacrifice to you, because it all belongs to you anyway. So at this time, I'd like to ask if our prayer team members and our elders would be willing to come down front. And as I close us in prayer now, brothers and sisters, I would just remind you that if you need prayer, if you're like, man, 
this is hard, I don't want to do this, I know that I probably need to do this thing, I just don't want to, or I'm struggling to, come down front. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Maybe it's something else. That's what we're here for, guys. But Father, we lay these things back where they rightfully belong. We lay them at your feet. We ask in the name of Jesus that you would empower us, that you would strengthen us to follow you fully and to whatever it is that you have asked us to hear and obey, even today, Father. And I pray your blessing on my brothers and my sisters that they might sense, Father, all that you are doing in their lives. Would you give them a sense of your pleasure with them? Yeah, that you are pleased with their effort, their steps forward. And Father, would you let us see the fruit that you bear for your glory, but for our joy as a result. Yeah. And Father, we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.